Curtis with the Double Back Double Feature Podcast. This is episode four, and today I'm talking to Doug McCoy from the Throwback Network, talking about two Stephen King movies, Maximum Overdrive, which is a late night favorite of mine, and Sleepwalkers. Doug is a pretty prolific podcaster, so I encourage you to go hit up his podcasts in the theater, crazy, creepy, cool movies and 80s anthologies. I'll talk to you again at the end of our conversation. On the podcast today, I have Douglas McCoy, or Doug McCoy. He uh, is part of the Throwback Network and lots of podcasts that I've been listening to over the past year. Uh, Your most current is In the Theater. And uh, I also uh, remember Crazy Creepy Cool Movies, which went on for a while. I I haven't been listening to you as long as uh, the uh, Anthologies podcast. but So In the Theater... That is a podcast where you actually go through and talk about movies that you saw, kind of like in the early '90s. Yeah, absolutely. So there were there were two uh, theatrical eras in my life. One was the crazy, creepy, cool movie era, where that's what I saw on TV. There were only 22 movies I saw in the theater, you know, from birth to age 16 when I got a job. Then we have the in the theater era where I got a job and I had money and a car and opportunity and we just started going to the theater every night. And so in that period from September 90 to uh, July 93, when I left for college, I saw 136 movies in the theater, many of them multiple times. So, you know, uh, from that point on, I hated watching movies on TV, really didn't like watching them on VHS it was in the theater or nothing. So yeah, you, there's two different periods in my life and the the two podcasts reflect that. So crazy, creepy, cool movies is TV movies in the theater is that era from the, uh, the early nineties when I saw them in the movie theater. Yeah, that is a perfect time for me too. Cause that's around about the time I really started getting into seeing movies in the theater. Uh, I remember my grandmother taking me on more than one occasion over the summer. It must've been 90 or 91 I remember we went and saw My Girl and Adam's Family. And then on another trip, we saw uh, Undiscovered Country, the Star Trek Undiscovered Country, and something else. I don't remember what it was. But that's like a perfect era, this, this particular podcast, because that's around about the time I started loving going to the theater. I was super, I was probably about eight years old. Uh, so yeah, it was perfect. So, I mean, in terms of, uh, you know, movies like Maximum Overdrive, I saw that on TV. That, mm-hmm. My first interaction with that was on TV. Was that uh, a movie that you watched on TV as well, or like late night TBS or something? Well, that would have been a movie that I would have seen on TV because it's, what, 85? Yeah, I think 85, 86, maybe? Yeah. yeah. Somehow, somehow I missed it, though. There's a couple that slipped through the cracks, and I did not see this one until last year, maybe. It popped up on YouTube. And um, I uh, I have a secret hangout where I like to go and nobody can find me. And uh, I watched it there in my secret hangout. And uh, that was the first time I'd seen it. But I was aware of it. I had just never seen it until recent times. Just so everybody knows, uh, if you haven't seen the movie, uh, I'm just going to read the Rotten Tomatoes synopsis so we all kind of have a baseline. So... After radiation from a comet showers the Earth, inanimate tractor trailers come to life and terrorize a group of people trapped in a rest stop. So the manager is played by Pat Hingle and a prisoner on parole, played by Emilio Estevez, uh, who works at the uh, truck stop. They organize a defense uh, of the group and engage a counterattack. So according to Rotten Tomatoes, it was released in theaters in July of 86. And coincidentally, Stephen King not only wrote, he wrote the short story Trucks, which the uh, screenplay is based on, but also directed it, which is incredible to me. I had no idea until probably this morning that he directed it. I never knew that. I really think this is the a great example of a popcorn movie. I hear this all the time, especially with the superhero movies that are coming out, you can debate whether how re, uh, rewatchable they are. Some people love them. Some people uh, just love to go see them for the experience. I think this is a movie that is a great summertime, uh, late night movie, popcorn movie, where you can just kind of shut it off. It's just a big, dumb movie. <laughs> and just kind of, uh, uh, you don't have to think too hard while you're watching it. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Uh, 
as as you know, listening to my podcast, I like movies that will contribute something philosophically to me. I don't think Maximum Overdrive does that. But it is an example. We we were talking about me and, and the I think you mentioned the eighties anthology podcast, which you know we concluded because we uh, covered all our our plan material. But the guys in that podcast and I were talking about doing another one called Monster in the House, which is you know that's a, if you look at Aliens, uh, Deep Star Six, any time where they are uh, besieged by an evil force and they're trying to escape or survive. Uh, and that's what this is. This is a siege. I don't know if it's really a monster in the house movie. Um, I take that uh, from the uh, save the cat guy. If you've ever read his uh, save the cat book on screenwriting. Mm -mm. Uh, but uh, that's one of his 12 categories of movies. Save the cat is one of them or uh, excuse me. Monster in the house is one of them, but um, it definitely is a siege movie. And I really do like those, you know, siege type movies where you've got a group of like assault on precinct 13. You got a group of people trapped in a location and they are trying to survive as they are attacked from without. If you're a Stephen King fan, you know that he has a great appreciation for uh, George Romero. I know the short story people have kind of drawn uh, similarities between uh, Night of the Living Dead and uh, at least trucks, which as an adult, it, it seems silly. But uh, as, as a kid, I really remember just finding the little things really frightening. The motorized knife that comes to life in the kitchen and cuts the waitress's arm. Like that was so frightening to me as a kid because the kitchen was kind of like the adult place. It just seems so adult to me in that any of this stuff at any time could just come to life. I guess kind of like the mangler or, you know, these kind of inanimate objects that can just turn on you. Particularly an electric knife. Now, in my house, the electric knife was dad's. That was dad's territory. I still don't have one and don't think I've ever used one to this day. So, you know, not only was that frightening to me as a kid, but uh, even as an adult rewatching the movie for this podcast, uh, I had forgotten that part when, you know, the knife comes into frame and you know what's going to happen. And uh, my wife, who uh, on the podcast I call Hot Pink Heather, she's sitting there. She won't watch. And I'm going, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. And it gets that lady. And it's just like, oh, that's so terrible. So were there any parts in, in the movie that you find particularly cheesy? I know you, you said you just watched it recently. I know when I was watching it, some things that seem absolutely frightening as a kid, I watched it as an adult, it just seems cheesy. Were there any parts that just seem kind of cornball? Well, the whole thing seems flat to me, and uh, maybe we'll discuss that a little later about you know how how well it adapts uh, Stephen King's works. But but besides the flatness that I think you see overall, um, somebody getting killed with the watermelons. Uh, on the bridge, the, the whole bridge. Say, I, now, here's part of the problem. We're, we're watching this as adults who now know how the world works, whereas we did not know how the world worked, you know, when we were 12, right. 13, when this first came out. Um, I'm always saying, hey, if you can't suspend disbelief, don't, you know, go see a movie, because if you're going to sit there and say, well, that's not how it works in the real world. You know, the real world's boring. That's why you watch movies. But um I, I did fall into that a little because the bridge part, I know you really liked it, but it seemed I, I could the way it was cut. It didn't seem like in what you're seeing in one scene is what you're seeing happen in another scene. Um, and then the woman getting I guess she got killed by cascading watermelons. But uh, also the the Coke machine, because, again, the adult mind kicks in. I said Coke cans don't come out of that like that. You know, they can't, that machine can't <laughs> shoot Coke cans at you. So that seemed cheesy, and uh, then the arcade game, uh, because again, back in the in the still in the mid '80s, arcade games had this mystique about them that they could do. You know, think about Ninja Three, the domination. You know, a ninja could come through the arcade game and possess you. Um, you know, the, you you had that here where a guy gets a. And by the way, the arcade game was Star Castle, which is which was old even in nineteen eighty six. Yeah, it was an old game. It's what uh, Atari. It's what led to Yar's Revenge. Atari was trying to right. port Star Castle, and they couldn't do it, so they came up with Yar's Revenge. But uh, I don't think that a arcade game can just fry you like that. I don't think it can shoot you with you know well it was going to hypnotize you yeah first. yeah then it's gonna <laughs> yeah all those great graphics coming out that are drawing you in and then it uh, shocks you to death so in that scene the the uh, the guy says he i guess he's talking to the machine he says your mama he like he like insults yeah. the machine and as a kid in the early 90s that was a sick burn like you like totally destroyed mm -hmm. somebody all you had to say was your mama 
Like it's so, but now it's so tame sounding. But back then it was like, oh, yes. All you had to do was mention somebody's somebody's mama, and that was it. In in the in the discussion. Absolutely, yeah. That phrase still, and I and I haven't heard it for years because I think you're correct. I think it's fallen out of favor. But uh, yeah, just hearing that again, it just it it causes me to cringe. That's such a terrible. Yeah. Phrase or was such a terrible phrase at that time, but uh, yeah, it seems like it's been supplanted by other worse things today. Before we moved on, I just got to come to Stephen King's defense here with the bridge scene in the watermelons. I, this is something sure, that sure. I don't know if this is something he actually intended, but it, I, it came to mind, and I kind of gave him the benefit of the doubt. I don't know if you remember. I don't remember if it's the Omen or the uh, the set, uh, Damien, the Omen Two. I, I don't remember which one it's from, but somebody. There's a scene where somebody uh, gets killed by a flying piece of um, like sheet, a sheet of glass, and uh, it goes through a window and kind of takes a guy out and goes through the window of a like a little cafe. It's a. Uh- it's David Warner, isn't it? it doesn't David Warner get uh, killed with a remember. piece of glass like I that? Who, you know, David Warner himself is the epitome of evil. You know, Sark from Tron and uh, evil in the Time Bandits. So. Right. I still haven't seen Time Bandits, by the way. Oh, my goodness. I still haven't seen it. Yeah. Um, but in that scene, there is uh, glasses of wine on the table, or there's like a bottle of wine on the table in the restaurant. And when, I guess whenever they shot that, they did that purposefully. So whenever the glass went through and the guy's body crashed through the window, the spilling wine looked like blood. So it was like a way to kind of mm-hmm. uh, get some cheap uh, gore out of the scene. So I was giving Stephen King the benefit of that with these falling watermelons, kind of like a, a little, a, some cheap gore. You did, that's like a little less makeup, I guess, you have to, or a little less time to prepare some kind of like splatter pack or what have you. So I just gave it to him. Yeah, I that that makes perfect sense. I I've got a thing about um cheesy kills, especially in slasher movies, you know. It's like I I I like Michael Myers. You just you got the butcher knife and there's your tool of choice. When you're killing somebody with a weed whacker or something silly like that, I don't know. But so I, I, I kind of bristle up at that. But I think you're correct. And I mean, literally, again, if you want to put those adult glasses back on, literally, if a bunch of watermelons fell on you, I'm sure it, you know, would hurt. But it's I, I think I remember kids talking about that. I know they talked about the Coke machine, but they thought it was, oh, my goodness, guy got killed with Coke machine. But I remember even the kids in middle school uh, laughing at the woman being killed with watermelons. So I guess you still have that little stigma that I'm carrying even today. Yeah. yeah well, I think even as a kid, I uh, really didn't think the Coke machine was so scary. I, I, I grew up playing baseball. So whenever the kid puts the uh, mask on, I, I, I was like, oh, yeah, totally. That like, You'd be safe. Cocaine yeah. can't get you through a catcher's mask. Yeah, I thought this that guy's was pretty golden. smart. Yeah, no, it was. It was. And actually, that kid is probably the uh, has the most level head of anybody in the entire movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he has to. So something I noticed, I, I, I don't think I've ever read Trucks, but I, I've, I've heard kind of a breakdown about it. And in terms of just like uh, an adaptation, it sounds to me that Trucks is more of a... Uh, leads up to or kind of like lays the groundwork for a future slavery with these humans having to serve these trucks uh, kind of perpetually. That's what it sounds like. Uh, it kind of ends with the humans having to gas up these trucks just, you know, indefinitely into eternity and that's it. Whereas Maximum Overdrive, it's it seems much more just like a hostage situation, I guess. And we don't really get any of, any of that creepy, like this could last forever. But something I did notice... How in the world do aliens know our curse words on Earth? How do they know how to drive our cars on Earth? Like I don't, I don't want to get too pedantic or you know too adult about it. But I was one of the best parts of the movie. I think is the first two minutes. We you know where Stephen King does his cameo and he's at the ATM, <laughs> and the ATM kind of tells him off. I don't know. It, it seems much, much more lighthearted, even though people are getting, you know, mowed down by, uh, you know, gunfire and what have you. It's still much more of a cartoony representation of, of the story. Yeah. 
this is a lark, really, whereas the short – now, I haven't read the short story uh, since middle school. I um, looked for it on my Kindle last night, thought for sure I had night shift, found out I didn't. I only have skeleton crew, so I'm going to have to to rectify that when we're done podcasting here. Uh, but I, I seem to remember it the way that you described it, that it was bleaker. You do have you know the, the humans – uh, consigned to fill up the truck. You do have the, that in the movie and in the book, but I think you're correct. I think it's darker, bleaker in the book. Here, it's just a lark. It's I, again, you call it a popcorn movie. That's what it is. Um, it it is. I, I I saw the same thing you did. You know, how do aliens know these words? How do they know how to get an emotional rise out of us? Um, but we, we so there are aliens in it because. It, the first explanation we get is that there's a comet, right? Right. But right. but then Emilio, midway through the movie, says, "What if they're aliens and they're trying to just you know depopulate the planet?" And then the little narration we get, or the little screen crawl at the end, says, "Yeah, the Russians destroyed you know with their weather quote unquote weather satellite <laughs> destroyed something in the comet's tail." So there were aliens that involved. So we really have two explanations. Um, I I wondered the same thing. How do they know? Again, that's maybe that's the adult eyes and you're thinking about it too much. Uh, really, if you think about it, many Stephen King plots don't make a whole lot of sense. Right. Uh, a, a guy had told me one time that said Stephen King is just writing B movies, if you think about it, which I think which that, now Stephen King's a, a I mean, he's my favorite author, hands down. There's no doubt about it. So I'm not criticizing him in any way. But I do think he's really not the plot guy as much as he's the big idea guy. You know, I, I don't think he cares as much about why the trucks are coming to life just as the fact that they do, you know? So, but I did wonder that as well. You know, I wondered if you took the aliens out of it, the way that, and I just prefer to ignore the aliens. I just kind of see it as, you know, machinery, you know, rising up against their overlords that from a machine's perspective, mankind is the slave driver. And now when they're cut loose, the bank is going to tell you to to blank off, you know, and the ATM is going to call you, uh, you know, uh, a certain name and so forth. And and they're just rising up, but they need fuel. So they need to work with people. You know, it's it's almost the seeds of the Matrix just 14 years Early. That's something I really you know, talk about, like this thing about rising up and and what have you. I want to run this by you, and you just I just want to get your opinion mm-hmm. on this. And I had to write this down because after I caught on to this, I just had to you know make sure to go through it, looking for just to make sure I wasn't crazy. So I really I know I know this is silly because we're talking about what a kind of like a bonehead movie this is. I really found like this spiritual subtext in this movie and i really think i really think it is probably if it's not uh, on purpose by uh king it maybe it's just kind of an accidental thing but i know in the 80s there was kind of this rash of these uh kind of swindler faith healers who would get in trouble with different you know um, ethical misdeeds and what have you and so that was kind of a thing in uh, the 80s, especially the late 80s, maybe early 90s, I know a lot of uh, a lot of like heavy metal bands, which we haven't even talked about ACDC yet. But a lot of these heavy metal bands really uh, kind of took that on as uh, like they had an axe to grind against kind of this hypocrisy or what have you. So I don't know if that was in the air when they were writing the screenplay, but okay. So here are just some moments. Um, and uh, you tell me what you think. So we have the Bible salesman, obviously, but when he's talking, he's he's making a sales pitch to some of the people at the Dixie Boy. He highlights creation and the fall in his self in his sales pitch. And then we get Emilio talking about the broom theory, kind of how uh, we have, or it could be these aliens who want to come and wipe the world clean kind of reminiscent of Noah's Ark. Also, you have this whole idea of the created undermining the creator because the waitress runs out and she's saying, you can't, we made you, and then gets mowed over. So we had, there's like this, uh, there's that tension between created and the creator, and obviously the ACDC song, Who Made Who, which plays, you know, throughout. There's a picture of the Last Supper on the jukebox right before that scene where the waitress runs out. So it it seems very purposeful that the camera would be on the uh that portrait and then goes to the waitress when she runs out and says you can't we made you 
Is that enough evidence to uh, convict Stephen King of trying to write some kind of spiritual, uh, I don't know, uh, commentary on what would might have been in the air in pop culture around the time? Yeah, I, you know, I, as an avid reader of Stephen King, I, I haven't read his entire uh, bibliography, right? That's what you call the, the uh, yeah. author's canon. I haven't read his entire canon um, because it's very, very, very broad. But I've I've read probably ninety percent, and uh, faith is always you know you could call it religion or you could call it faith or just God. God's usually somewhere there. I mean, even just I reread Carrie this week, and of course it's it's blatant. Um, I believe Stephen King believes there's a God or thinks there probably is a God. I think there's a famous story where Stanley Kubrick, when he was doing The Shining, called him up and said, "I you know I need to know. Do you believe in God?" And he said yes, and Kubrick just hung up on him, uh, you know. Um, so he believes there's a God, I think, but he's also gone on record saying religious people, which I suppose would include me, uh, are weird. Um, you know, understandably, I mean, so, so you've kind of covered a broad territory there. I mean, you did have that kickback because you had the satanic panic in the 80s of Dungeons and Dragons. It's going to, and I can understand people without faith being annoyed by that. Uh, conversely, I think you have to understand that these people, whether they were right or wrong, they thought there was a danger. They weren't trying to control just to control. They, you know, I, I was a, you know, interested in D&D. My preacher told me you can't play it. You know, he wasn't trying to control me. He was generally concerned about me. So you did have that satanic panic that would annoy the non-believers. You do have, you know, believers, unfortunately, that don't act the way they should. Now, the interesting thing, you know, I reread Carrie, I think, uh, Wednesday, and then I, I watched the new version because uh, I, I had not seen the remake and I wanted to see how it stood up. And in the remake, it's kind of interesting that Carrie tells her her mom's going on about how sex is wrong or something. And Carrie at one point tells her that's not even in the Bible. <laughs> you know, so you mm -hmm. do have that. Uh, but you see it in the mist. You have that lady that wants there to be human sacrifice. And of course, in the, in the book, the mist, she's not a Christian. She's some sort of witch who subscribes to some Christians. So you, you you always have it in Stephen King. I don't know how well he's lining it up with anything. I I like your points and the way you're seeing it. It may, that, it may be that he just got lucky and they kind of right. lined up a little, because they are pretty universal. And it happened. I mean, that totally happens. Yeah. I mean, and sometimes it's, it's just not, it's a total coincidence or it's just total accidental, just what's going on in the filmmaker's head or just their background. These things just kind of seep in. Yeah. And, and we also, you know, I believe these things are hardwired into us. Right. You know, God, fall, uh, resurrection, redemption. I believe they're, you know, that's why all they keep popping up in all our stories. So just by chance, you could hit on it. But undoubtedly, there is some of that Stephen King. I don't know if it's infatuation slash dislike, you know, both together uh, for religion and, and, and the components of faith. But definitely you see it there. And if you wanted to, to push that analogy, um, I think you could. I like what you're doing where you're saying, you know, the create, creation rising up against the creator. I think you could, could definitely make the case that that's in there. Around that time, it just seemed like so much was in the air. You mean you had movies like Black Roses, which kind of take on the uh, mm -hmm. satanic panic. You had the PM, I think it was the PM, PMRC, was the Parents Music Resource. I so think, people were, yeah. you know, interested in what actually was going on in their kids' music. You had that Hell's Bells documentary, which probably did a lot more damage <laughs> than anything else because yeah, it just showed yeah. people new bands to check out, if anything else. Uh, but yes. it, it's a real interesting time. And, and this is something I noticed in both Maximum Overdrive and Sleepwalkers, which we'll talk about in a sec. Heavy metal music, and especially kind of like that glam hair metal, for the for that era in in horror films and thriller films and what have you, they were like perfect for each other. They, they're they're everywhere. There are so many. Uh, I mean, you go through like all the Freddy movies and the um, you know Jason with Jason Lives with uh, you know Alice Cooper. You had Dokken and in uh, in Dream Warriors and what have you but it just seemed like a it was perfect and i guess there was something that parents were scared of too that you had no idea what was going on with your kids uh you know in their room listening to their records or what have you it, it just seemed like uh and it i guess also you know in the late 80s early 90s i there was a time i thought 
around the, I guess it was around the time that Appetite for Destruction by Guns N' Roses came out. Like that was so, uh, that was so intense for the time. People like don't remember how intense Guns N' Roses were when they first came out. It was like if you listened to Guns N' Roses, you were probably in a gang. Yeah. You know, it was like, I mean, not really, but it felt like, yeah. oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. I guess when Terminator 2 came out and Guns N' Roses was on the soundtrack, maybe that was around the time it softened the message a little bit. But around time of Appetite, they were wild. Well, they, they yeah, they started to fizzle out as grunge, you know, started to come on the scene. But for a while there, you're, and I think, I mean, to build on your theory, I, there's, you are correct. It's undeniable that even today, but definitely in the 80s, horror movies and uh, heavy metal went together. It's possible that it's because they were both outsiders, you know? I mean, there was something, you know, I know you had like, like the exorcist, which is your horror chic, you know, the horror that's been accepted. Somebody had a better title for it than horror chic. I forget prestige horror. So you did have some prestige horror. You had the universal movies that were beginning to be recognized, but again, stuff like nightmare on Elm street, Friday the 13th, you still talked about in rather hushed tones. That was, you kept it over here away from the regular, uh, society. And I think it was the same with heavy metal. Now, you know, heavy metal would become more and more popular. But in the beginning, the heavy metal guys in my school, they were a certain kind of of class and they were kind of outcasts, you know. So in in the one, I think you have the two outcasts going together. You have the two things that really are blatant and in your face. I mean, that's the thing about horror. Horror is and even when it has meaning, that's how, it, you know, what Night of the Living Dead, George Romero said, I wanted to make a movie that would wake people up. So I showed, you know, the dead coming back to life and eating the living. I mean, it's I'm going to do something that's so in your face. And I think heavy metal was that way as well. So, yeah, you're I mean, when you look at Maximum Overdrive and you see that that the uh, the score is by ACDC, you're correct. It's, it's a no brainer. And it, it's peanut butter and jelly. It, it goes great together. And uh, I just think that's because there's similarities to the two. Right. Well, before we move on to Sleepwalkers, I did. Do you have any particular? Well, obviously, you just saw this movie, but I know you've read, uh, you've read Trucks and you've read a lot of Stephen King. Uh, do you have any particular memories around? Uh, I think Trucks is on in the Night Shift collection. I think Trucks is in Night Shift. Yeah, it is. It's okay. Nice. So, do you have any any strong memories about your first reading or or subsequent readings of Night Shift or Trucks or? I, I remember reading Trucks in particular. Um, I remember sitting in seventh grade science class at my desk, which was a wooden long table that I think at least two students sat at, at a side, maybe even four. And why I was reading Trucks instead of, of listening to um, – what was his name? I forget. But instead of le- listening to the teacher, I don't know. But I clearly remember reading Trucks. And I think that was before Maximum Overdrive. And then when Maximum Overdrive came out, I think I recognized it for what it was and tried to tell everybody, you know, in my school that, hey, that's based on a short end. Nobody was interested. I did not like you did not know it was written by Stephen King and directed by Stephen. Knew it was based on the short story. Um, Really remember the Green Goblin. I think that was a a big, you know, and that's a strange. Do you have any idea? You know, I know they needed an adversary. You need an enemy with a face, you know, so they used the Green Goblin. But why would they have used, uh, you know, a Marvel product, a pre-existing character? Why wouldn't they have just made a different type of face on it? I don't know. But I I heard somewhere and I'd, I'd give credit where credit is due, but I can't remember where I heard this. But I feel like uh, originally they wanted Darth Vader on the okay. truck. And uh, I guess Lucas said no. Yeah. And uh but uh, I, I guess uh, Marvel came in second, and they said yes. Green, he's he's Marvel, right? Yeah, that's okay, that's yeah. Us. yeah one of Spider Man's foes, the Green Goblin. I, I mean, it works great, but it it is I, to in me it, to me it's hindered a little bit because you're like, well, that's the Green Goblin. I know who that is. Whereas if it was just a general demon face or whatever, you wouldn't know what it is, and it might make it a little... I, I don't know. It, it kind of works and kind of doesn't. Well, but. you know, there is a lot of product placement in Maximum Overdrive. A lot oh, of yeah. a lot of those trucks... <laughs> and I imagine it has had a lot to do with funding the movie, too. Uh, oh, you know, sure. Just getting, you know, get the Miller Light truck getting blown up. <laughs> it's just... Yeah, I really didn't understand why they blew the Miller Light truck up. You know, I would have <laughs> thought they would have tried to save that one, but... Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> all all that all that beer just flying in the air. Yeah. And, and and you know what? That's around about the time two of the best shots, in my opinion, in that movie. Uh, you know, we can do talk about this and move on, but I think my my two favorite shots of the whole movie are both involve the waitress. Mm-hmm. And one of them is when she she goes out and she kind of has her last stand with the trucks before you know they take her out, and uh, she shoots off the rocket launcher that blows up the Miller Lite truck, and she's kind of sliding down yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the truck, and then you see the license plate North Carolina Bubba. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then the other is when uh, I, I guess when that mule truck with the the gun kind of waylays the dixie boy for the i guess it's the first time Mm -hmm. and the camera is just panning slowly across and there's smoke everywhere and people are kind of standing up and shaking themselves off that's like one that's a really good shot like straight up that was a beautiful shot well i you know i really enjoyed it a lot this second time the first time i watched it maybe i wasn't concentrating maybe i was disappointed i don't know because this was built now this was the kind of movie again i was you said 86, right? So I was... I think 86, yeah. So I was yeah, only 86. 12. Uh, a lot of my more redneck friends just really, you know, that wouldn't have seen the logical gaps in this really thought it was great. So I had, I, even though I never saw it, I had a lot of expectation for it. Didn't forget the title. Was a little disappointed the first time. But this second time watching it, when you see, you know, they have that part where that, that bulldozer and the mule truck is coming down the road. And you just know, oh, man, they've stepped it up. You know, this the, the trucks themselves couldn't get it done. So now they've called in a game changer. And it was a game changer. Um, I loved it when they were doing the Morse code. And it was because they're, they're machines. They can't speak perfectly right. So it says someone must pump fuel. Someone will not be hurt. You know, and I, I love I thought that was great. Um I like them blowing up the Happy Toys truck, the Green Goblin truck. At the, it's kind of real quick, but uh, you know that that truck has pursued them as they try to. Which their their plan is very sensible. Let's get to an island, which is what I would do. Uh, you know, in a in a zombie apocalypse, I would either get to an island or I would just cut out the stairs in my house. I think you would be safe if you did that. But um, I've thought that for a long time. And just recently, a couple of weeks ago, I heard somebody else say the same thing. But uh, yeah, they go to an island and then the truck follows them. And they it's a real quick um, encounter. The one dude uh, tries to steal a diamond ring and he gets run down and then Emilio, you know, blasts him. But they're shooting those rocket launchers, man. They're shooting them from the hip. Like cowboys. Yeah, they're, they're not putting them on their shoulder and line up their shot. They're just winging it. And uh, taking out these trucks. But, uh, yeah, that was probably my favorite when the uh, – well, the airplane was kind of scary too. The airplane comes in to ride to the Valkyries. Yeah. And then later yeah. you see that it has crashed into a school bus. I don't remember that. I do remember the uh, the airplane coming in, and I know that plays a pretty significant part in the short story. Because isn't there like a part where they look up and they see a plane going overhead, and then they're trying to figure out, well, have they taken over everything? Yeah. <laughs> or is are, are there people in this – Plane? That I can't remember, but you do have. I you can see the goodness of Stephen King in this. Like when the boy um, is trying to make his way, you know, he's going through the neighborhood, and you see the aftermath, and you have to put the story together in your mind. One dude has Walkman headphones on, and blood is pouring out of his ears. So what happened there? I don't know. The lawnmower is already covered in blood. So you know that it's been up to something before the boy comes along and it starts chasing him. I think there's a girl hanging out the window with like her hair dryer wrapped around her neck or something. (laughs) You know, so it's just all all these. Now, uh, let me ask you this. Did you see. So we know Emilio Estevez is in this. Pat Hingle, who uh, you've seen in tons of stuff. Um, Did you see Carrie Fisher? She's listed in the credits and I did not see her. No. Yeah, and no, no, I have no idea. Everybody seems to think she's in this movie, but nobody seems to know what she did in this movie. Interesting. I never even thought about that. Now I'm going to go on a wild goose chase watching this again and see if I can nail it. I wonder if she does a voice or something, or maybe she had a scene that got cut. Uh, who knows? Yeah, I I wondered if she was with Stephen King in the beginning. You know, where he has his little because he calls to his wife. I thought maybe that might be her. But, mm-hmm. you know, she's not in the Dixie Boy, so I don't know, you know, where else she would be. Did you know they remade this? I know they did it again, but it's called Trucks, right? Yeah, so it's called Trucks. It was a USA Network movie. Um, I apparently had started to watch it on Amazon Prime and given up on it because, 
you know, I thought in my, I said, isn't there a Timothy Busfeld version? And I looked it up and sure enough, I had watched about half of it. So I watched the rest of it yesterday. It's, it, this is maximum overdrive is better. Uh, by far. Yeah. Max, if you, if you want a movie about trucks coming to life, maximum overdrive is, is the better choice. So I guess we should talk about sleepwalkers when we, we like sure. absolutely went off on maximum overdrive, but you recommended sleepwalkers. I had never, I had thought I had never seen it. And then I get two minutes into it and I realize I have seen this before. I know I've seen this before. And I, I feel like I rented this at one of the old mom and pop video stores in my hometown and watched it at my grandparents' house of all places, which is Sleepwalkers is a movie you don't want your grandparents <laughs> to walk in while you're watching. <laughs> Not Especially really, the, no. uh, you learn a lot in the first 90 seconds of that movie. You have a guy who is yeah. literally cutting a T into his arm for his crush, or uh, we don't, maybe it's his crush, or maybe he just wants uh, lunch. Uh, Tanya, he's cutting a T in his arm for Tanya, and then uh, next thing you know, Sleepwalk, the song Sleepwalk by Santo and Johnny starts playing, and he is dancing with his mother. And uh, it's obvious that there is kind of mm-hmm. a, uh, kind of uh, some uh, very, they have an interesting relationship. It's very obvious. Yes. And And then while this is going on, they are literally waiting for cats to get caught in some cat traps out in the yard. So you learn a lot in the first uh, minute yes. or so of this movie. But uh, this was directed by Mick Garris, who is kind of, uh, has made a name for himself doing Stephen King adaptations. He's done The Stand, he's done The Shining, the 1997 remake of The Shining, Riding the Bullet, Desperation, Back of Bones. He has... He is covered, he's smothered and covered uh, Stephen King's uh, catalog, so I guess he has a really good relationship with King, no doubt. I have seen The Stand, I have not seen the sh- the uh, remake of The Shining, and I haven't seen any of the others. The Stand, I remember being a little hokey, but people seem to like it, but it, I guess it's obvious they ran out of money toward the end. But uh, I get that same feeling watching Sleepwalkers. I don't know if you get the same feeling, Doug, but uh, right before the first kill... well. Before I talk about the first kill, who is played, I forget the actor's name, but he plays the interior designer on Beetlejuice. Yeah. And that's what I know him from, which is a movie I watched incessantly as a kid. Okay, so uh, in a nutshell, this is from Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, The members of a small Indiana town are oblivious to the threat of their latest residents, Mary and Charles Brady, played by Alice Cridge. I guess I'm pronouncing that right. And Brian Krause uh, is the actor who plays Charles. Uh, Although they appear to be normal human beings, the mother and son are actually members of a dying breed of quote-unquote sleepwalkers, which are cat-like creatures that survive by feeding on virgins. And they are very uh, kind of shape-shifting, vampiric kind of uh, creatures. As Charles sets out to stalk their latest meal, his prey, young Tanya Robertson, played by, this is a very interesting name, Madchen Amick. Madchen Amick. I, ne- I have no idea uh, what else she's been in. I guess I should look that up. Do you Are, are you familiar with her and anything else she's played in? I remember falling in love with her from yeah. seeing her in this. Uh, yeah. You know, when, yeah. Uh, what what was, 1990? What, what was this? Uh, yeah, this uh, came out April 92. Really? Okay, April that 92. late. Um, yeah. yeah, I remember being very much in love with her uh, after this came out, but I never saw her in uh, anything else. Uh, I did IMDb her last night. She's in some movie called The Rats, which was a TV movie that sounds interesting to me. I found it on YouTube. I'm going to watch that a little later on. And I think she was in Twin Peaks, and they're like remaking that or rebooting that or something. So she's going to be in the reboot as well. But uh, no, Sleepwalkers was my only encounter with uh, – Imagine. Yeah, and it's it's. I really think that uh, Mick Garris is uh, he's a little microphone happy. I think because I, I noticed I, I put this in my notes. It seems that uh, like the first ten minutes of that movie, the audio is turned up so high you can hear every like you can hear everybody breathing, everybody's breath. You can hear like every. Uh, movement everybody makes kind of like the cloth on cloth as it, people are walking or turning the shots are always real close on somebody's face and it's always over the shoulder of another character so you kind of get this intimacy 
So it, it's no wonder that people would fall in love with matching because you're like right there. It's obvious she's very nervous, uh, or she plays uh, her her character is. Uh, you you would think she would be the popular girl who makes all the guys nervous, but she's a nervous one. And uh, I guess that's just something endearing about that because you usually don't in, in film. It's not exactly a uh, a trope, and especially in horror movies, to have beautiful women to play like these nervous kind of. Usually, that it's the guy who's fumbling over himself and what have you. I was wondering why in the world are they in the theater alone? She, uh, Mach- uh, Tanya, uh, played by Matchin, it uh, she works at a theater and she's working. She's at work and it's in the middle of the day. And uh, Charles comes in and he's ordering food, but they're kind of flirting with each other. Why are they the only ones in the theater? No money for extras would be, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, it is a small now. It's a small town in Indiana, right? And uh, right. so I don't know. You, I, I don't want to give away anything here, but I think you're somewhere in that vicinity, right? Yeah. No. Yeah. I, I'm in Cincinnati. Okay. So, so yeah. And I'm and I'm I'm new to the Midwest, so. Uh, I was just in Indiana for the very first time about a month or so ago, and my goodness, I had no idea. Like, <laughs> there, there's really not a lot, at least from the highway. Yeah, when you're. Tra- it's like good. Like, it, it's just cornfields and tractors. Yeah, and and there's no mountain ranges in the background, are there? No, no. As there no. are in this movie. Um, I never noticed that. Oh, you did during the car oh, wow. chase. Yeah, sorry. That's, <laughs> well, that's from me, you know, going from Ohio to California. And, and again, I don't like to pick apart these movies, but hey, you know what? You know, you're going to have the mountain. I mean, it's clear you've never been to Indiana. Why not set it in Southern California where you filmed it? But in any case, it is a small Indiana town. Uh, they are there late at night. Her dad picks her up at midnight. So, oh, okay, okay. I, yeah. So I guess that uh, it was her dad, um, Ferris Bueller's dad. I think so. Yeah, sure was. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, and her her mom looked familiar too, but I don't know what from. Um, but uh, yeah, they're just in the movie theater. I just assumed it was late at night, and it was a small Indiana town. Of course, they have a pretty bustling high school once you see it. So, you know, it's funny that they would offer a writing workshop course in high school. I never, you know, I my background is in creative writing. I never took. Well, I grew up in a small town in Texas, but we did not have writing workshops in in, in high school. That was definitely a college thing, but okay. uh, I guess they had to get that in there because Charles actually lays out kind of the story between him and his mother in his story in class as he's given his reading, which I, I guess is a good way to kind of skip over yes. a lot of mm-hmm. uh, extraneous dialogue or you know explanation. He can just read the story in class and we kind of know what's going on. So yeah, Mr. Fallows is the teacher. Now I was, it was obvious. They must have ran out of money before he gets offed. He meets up with Charles. Uh, he pulls him over in a very strange move, and Charles ends up taking his hand off. Mr. takes Mr. Fallows' hands off. Driving the same Volkswagen Beetle, by the way, that my junior high school English teacher drove are so, you serious exactly i was like oh my goodness it's mr uh, uh buckingham's car oh wow <laughs> you know so. well they must have really did their research you know yeah, midwest well, they, yeah midwest uh <laughs> high school english teachers this is what they drive so they did get that yeah. part right they they left the mountains in but they got that part right yeah well i was a little i was a little miffed that you know when it actually came when charles actually you know finally gets him out in the woods and is about to off him he you we don't see anything the camera kind of pulls up and spins around, and uh, that's it. And I, I wonder why that—it it must have been a budget choice. It had to have been. Yeah, it, that's, again, a real—now, che- now this is this is one that I saw in the theater, and I must have seen it twice, at least, because I was in love with it. I, I loved this movie and could not see the flaws of it, even though all of my peers could. And uh, so, uh, yeah, I I was an apologeticist for this movie. I <laughs> I fought for this movie and tried to convince other people that it was good. And I think when I finally bought it on DVD, probably seven years ago, and watched it, I said, you know, no, uh, you know, of all the Stephen, and that's what as I was watching this yesterday, I thought of all the Stephen King movies I could have suggested: The Shining, Carrie, Firestarter, even Cat's Eye. You know. I said sleepwalkers. I don't know why. <laughs> I'm glad that we had a chance, or that I had a chance to revisit it at least, because I never would have. Pro- I never would have seen it 
again, probably. Yeah. And I never would have realized that I had already seen it. Uh, and, it's, and it kind of brought me back to, it must have been late high school when I saw it, it was like on VHS or what have you. But yeah, so I gotta get your I gotta get you to weigh in on this. What did you think about whenever Charles is finally on his killing spree? He all of a sudden he turns into like a wise cracking Freddy character. Well, that's that's the I mean you're talking about Mr. Fallows being killed, and that's it. And, and so Mr. Fallows just runs into a tree, which is that I mean mm-hmm. again that Brian doesn't care. What's is it, Brian's the actor? What's his name? Charles. Uh, Charles. Charles doesn't kill him. He just runs into a tree. And knocks himself out, and then Charles mangles him, and yeah, you see that. So that was okay, weird. Right. But one, of the weirdest thing, what you're talking about there is also, I think even when I first watched it, I, I recognized as well. Now the people in the theater with me, they could, they were laughing um, at that scene you're talking about when Charles and his mother start being affectionate. They, uh, there's a story I tell in in the theater. I won't retell it here, but uh, of things that were shouted out. <laughs> in the theater when Mr. Fallows so Charles cuts his hand off or rips his hand off and Mr. Fallows goes running away he says I'm sorry people were laughing at that which is kind of funny and then Charles Charles attacks him but the one thing that even I could see is they try to set up Charles as being this sympathetic you know hey we're always on the move we've never seen any other sleepwalkers um, I'm really in love with Tanya and then all of a sudden that switches, and you're correct. He becomes like Freddy Krueger saying, just think of yourself as lunch. It does have to hurt. He stabs that cop in the ear with a pencil, which is just, you know, ridiculously grotesque. And he says, cop kebab, you know, <laughs> and it's, and it just, yeah. And it, they really, you know, the big attraction for me was that, you know, teenage angst period of the forbidden love and the never getting things what you want. And I thought that's what they, just like they did in Bram Stoker's Dracula, you know, a few months later, the uh, Francis Ford Coppola, right, movie? Right. Um, you know, they they start with that same idea here and then they just abandon it and it becomes a slot and, and, and it gets even worse from that point. When uh, Alice attacks the cops and no vegetables, no dessert. Oh my goodness! I had, <laughs> I had forgotten that part. And uh, the the worst use of a uh, corn on the cob since Troll Two. You know, oh, yeah. just uh, almost definitely. Yeah. Oh man, the cats. I can't imagine having to uh, be a filmmaker working with literally a herd of cats. I can't. I don't know how that was done. Oh yeah, but. I, something I noticed, I kind of got like a Ewoks vibe from these cats running around. I kind of even the music that's playing when you kind of see that the cats first gathering uh, in the yard. It, it sounds like Yub Nub to mm-hmm. me, like the song that ends uh, "Return of the Jedi." I kind of get this <laughs> dancing, dancey kind of feel for it. It's like this, this, uh, this tribe of cats just emerging from the forest. I don't know if that is, uh, if I was just loopy and delirious by that t- part, in, you know, by the time we get there in the film, but I was totally thinking he walks. Yeah, I didn't catch that, but then again, you got to realize there is still some of that Sleepwalkers apologeticist in me right. that I, I still, I desperately, desperately want to see something redeeming in this movie because I know I loved it so much and those teenage loves die very, very hard. I like the cat. I mean, you, to work with it, I thought the same thing. How did they wrangle all those cats? I mean, that, and, and you've got them going into like bear traps and stuff. You know, how did they do that? Um, what I like about the cats is it, it does have that Stephen King. And this is, I guess, what I like about Stephen King is that you have this. To me, he always be saying life looks great on the surface but there's an, a dark undercurrent to life. And every once in a while, you find a thin place, which is a very Celtic idea of, of the thin place. Every once in a while, you find a thin place where the darkness starts to come over onto our side. And some are more perceptive. So cats are just more perceptive. And they are just attracted in in a, a, a deadly way to these sleepwalkers because a, a, quite a few of them get killed. And yet they can't stop themselves from rooting out the sleepwalkers and and attacking them. But then again, think about how many cats pop up in in other Stephen King's works. You know, you got Cat's Eye, uh Pet Cemetery. Right. You've got Cats. I'm I thought there was another one. Was there one in It? Was I I, I don't like... think there's a cat in It. I can't remember a cat in It, yeah, but Pet remember. Cemetery Church is a is a major and definitely in the movie 
He's a he's a big part. And uh, Cat's Eye, of course, revolves around a cat. And I kind of always thought, you know, cats being different from dogs, being so solitary and, you know, silent most of the time. I always have wondered, man, maybe they do, you know, perceive sleepwalkers or who knows what they, they do with themselves. Yeah. The uh, the cop. Well, is it Officer Simpson? Yeah. Yeah. Officer Simpson. Yes. Yeah, he, mm-hmm. He's he's the cop with the cat Clovis. Yes. And who is very enthusiastic. He's a very yes. enthusiastic police officer. He loves what he does. It looks <laughs> He is hilarious. He he is absolutely hilarious and is totally a uh, a break in uh, cuz up to that point we we really don't know the full range of wickedness that the uh, sleepwalkers are capable of. We haven't seen them disappear yet or to go dim yet. We haven't seen we haven't seen that yet, so uh, when Officer Simpson kind of is on the scene and we uh, get that first interaction with him and Charles, it, it's a it's a welcome break because it's a pretty heavy movie up until that point. Yeah, I, I'd, I, and it also makes his death that much more heartbreaking, you know. Now, when uh, Mama attacks the, you know, Madchen's house and, and takes out all those cops, you know, Ron, Ron Perlman is one of the cops that she takes out, uh, uh Ron Perlman, a yep. rare role in which he's not covered in makeup. Um, she, you know, bites his fingers off, stabs dude with a corn cob. Uh, what all did she, she, she did terrible things, these cops, but, uh, Simpson's death is, is the, because he, what he had the cat, he's playing with the cat, uh, uses some non Sunday school language. And yet you still have a lot of affection <laughs> For this guy, and to get stabbed in the ear with a pencil is just, uh, just terrible. It's bad. With the dance scene, uh, oh, I, this is something that I really wanted to talk about because you, as being a, a lover of Stephen King's literary work, uh, and Sleepwalkers being a screenplay, it wasn't uh, adapted from a story or novel. I, that dance scene, the first thing I thought when I saw it was. If this was written in one of his novels, if this was a scene in one of his novels, it would have been horrifying yeah. the way he would have written it. And uh, it's it's a chilling scene still, but it's not what it would have been had it been actually in a story or in one of his books. Because even when Kubrick got a hold of The Shining, it was still a scary movie, but the book really is far scarier than the movie. Uh, it's King just has a mm-hmm. way of pulling out some uh, horrific detail and it's more than just shock value it's just he knows how to build atmosphere and uh, by that point the movie's moving so fast that we really don't get a chance to uh, dwell on that scene too for for very long was that a scene that's kind of oh yeah absolutely And, and i think what you're getting at first of all um charles has reverted in his injured state so clovis the cat attacked him when he was trying right. to to attack Madkin, Mad Mad Chin and um, Mad Chin, Tanya. Yeah. There we go. That's and uh, and wounded him enough because cats are lethal to him. So while the cats attacking him, their smoke is coming off and all this stuff. Uh, that he has reverted to full sleepwalker form. He's not in control of himself anymore. He doesn't look human anymore. They look kind of like full size um, demons from the gate. Remember the gate Mm-mm. and those little demons no. running around. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the gate was a move. A gate would have been a year. Oh no. The gate would have been several years before uh, sleepwalkers, maybe even before maximum overdrive, but there were these little claymation demons running around and that's what the sleepwalkers look like with a kind of feline like face on them. And so she's danced with him. I think the reason that would have been even more terrifying in a, in a book is because again, Stephen King has this way of saying, you know, the, the darkness intersects with the light. And it's not just that, hey, this is going to hurt. Hey, this is going to be gross. But it's that psychologically speaking, you have touched the darkness and you will never be the same. So you think about in it when the kids catch the tongue of Pennywise and they go into the other realm and they see the deadlights. And, and, you know, they'll never be the same because they see the deadlights. This is something similar to that. You know, even this this girl survives. She'll never be the same. She was put flesh to flesh with this sleepwalker and you you're that will never be undone. You always came that close to that evil that's on the other side of life and that's what would have made it so horrifying mm-hmm. to me. It, it it's it's absolutely brutal. That that scene it, it's mm-hmm. probably the most brutal scene in the in the film. It just not just on a, a, a gore level because it it ends up being a pretty gory scene. She she like rips his eyes out. But 
aside from that, just the psychological terror of it, like like you said, just like having touched like the just pure wickedness. It, it's 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 really well done. And and had it been in a in a, a novel or short story, we no doubt would have dwelt on it a lot longer. Uh, knowing knowing King, well, I know uh, we're we're running short on time. I did want to ask just a few questions since we are. Uh, talking about two movies that are uh, involve Stephen King. Okay. Uh, well, first with Sleepwalkers, what? Uh, when was the first time you do you remember actually seeing it for the first time? It, it would have been opening weekend. Oh, uh, goodness. Okay. A- April nineteen ninety two. Whatever day it came out. If I didn't see it that Friday, I saw it that Saturday. There's no doubt in my mind. And then, for sure, I saw it a second time. I'm not. You know, maybe that was when it hit the dollar movies. Uh, again, if you listen to in the theater and I explain our little movie going process, you know, we had the regular theater and then the dollar movies uh, for second run movies. But uh, definitely I saw it at least twice. Uh, but the first viewing would have been opening weekend, no doubt. So do you have a particular Stephen King? First, I wanna, I'm want i curious about your favorite Stephen King book, but I'm also very interested in your favorite uh, film. The favorite adaptation. And I mean, obviously, okay. well, Sleepwalkers isn't an adaptation, but any film that King is attached to. Do you have anything, anyone in particular? I know some movies you, because uh, I know you, you, you and I both probably agree on this. There are movies that may not technically be the best in terms of just uh, how we measure uh, film, but you know we can appreciate movies just in a time of our life, like we saw it at a certain age or we saw it with a certain someone that we have you know good. Uh, uh, memories with you know anything like favorite film uh, just from just overall okay um, well first of all let me say this I, I had the Sleepwalkers soundtrack uh, because uh, I love I'd never heard that song Sleepwalk before and uh, so it, I have that song now you know on my uh, on my phone any and you know what I wouldn't be surprised if Stephen King wrote that whole that whole film based yeah, around that one song. It, it I would not be surprised. Wouldn't surprise me. It's a beautiful, haunting song. Also, we get uh, Baudica by Anya, uh, and that played twice during the, I think, opening and closing. Uh, it played. So so I was, you know, big, really rooting for this movie and really loved this movie, and I just, I you know, guess I was disappointed uh, overall. But my favorite Stephen King book would be It, um, by far for several reasons, that was the first one I read. Uh, I picked it just because of the cover, uh, the original cover paperback was of this lizard like monster hand coming out of the sewer. And you see the, um, the, the newspaper boat coming down and it's a Pennywise about to kill Georgie. Um, and that was the first adult book I ever read. I was an avid reader, but I was always in the young adult, the juvenile section. I saw it and I jumped up to the adult level, and I read from, after I read it, I read Carrie, Cujo, Firestarter, Night Shift, Skeleton Crew, The Shining. Um, didn't make it through the stand. I just finished the stand last year, uh, but but I just I mean that was Stephen King. So so it was my doorway both to Stephen King and to adult literature, and um, it it is a master. It might it's it, it's. Like all Stephen King books, I think it's not balanced. It's it's very top heavy on the beginning side, and not as balanced on the resolution side. But it's still a masterpiece. There's there's no doubt. So I love it. As far as movie adaptations go, and King's probably going to dislike this. I like Children of the Corn. Um, mm-hmm. I I know he doesn't favor that adaptation. I like it a lot. Um, I whatever problem he has with it, I don't have with it. Um, it probably could be better than what it was. He he said Children of the Corn um, is like, you know, your daughter. He said when you send your daughter away to college, you hope she doesn't get, you know, raped at a frat party. And that's what happened to Children of the Corn, you know. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, that's so those pretty strong words. But I like it a lot. So that's probably my favorite. That You know, that beginning sequence where, the, you know, you have that eerie Danny Elfman-like music. And you see the drawings of all the things that the kids have been up to, killing people and stuff. Uh, just very, very eerie. So that would be my favorite movie adaptation. Um, Carrie though, the original is great. The, the remake of Carrie, I'm disappointed. I spent $3 on it. I really, yeah, it, uh, it really fell through, but the original Carrie, uh, that part where Sue Snell discovers the line going up to the blood 
and then the, mm-hmm. the gym teacher throws rather part. That's one of the best scenes in cinematic history ever. Um, yeah. I like The Shining, but I don't think The Shining is very faithful to the book at all. I, it's, it's not. Yeah, it's Shining in name only, you know, kind of for me, even though it's a great movie. Uh, so, yeah, I guess Children of the Corn. I, okay, I've never read Cycle of the Werewolf. I never read it, but my grandfather, and p- people really love to rip uh, Silver Bullet. Uh, I My grandfather recorded it for me on VHS, and I was pretty young. I, I was probably in my early teens, and my grandfather loves uh, those like old school, more like, I guess, I don't want to say Universal Monsters, but uh, he loves like more like that old school, not too gory. Uh, Turn me on to Silver Bullet, loved it. And I watched it over and over and over. So in terms of just pure nostalgia, Silver Bullet is it for me. That's probably the one I I love. And I still haven't read Cycle of the Werewolf. It the 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 uh, Tim Curry the you know it the the movie that is the one that absolutely frightened me. I was way too young. I, I don't think I've, I've told this story here, but it, I was way too young to be watching that. I think my I don't know if my parents were asleep but I was in the living room one night it was on cable I was alone watched it and it like totally I must have been in second grade that is way too young to be watching it because you know there are monsters coming out of the uh like the shower stalls there it's horrifying and uh it took me I was probably scared for years I I, probably five years I it just I thought about it constantly it just ruined me. I don't I don't I can't say I have a uh like a fear of clowns necessarily, but just the uh where where Stephen King decides to go in it is just chilling for a, a child which you know he's in the the first half he's dealing with children. But uh yeah, that it it totally frightened me and I think I tried to watch it again a few years ago as an adult and it did not hold up. I was like, what the heck was I <laughs> Why was I so scared? I, I can still terrify my wife today. I just have to say, we all float down here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, she just like, stop it. Stop saying that. Yeah. Uh, they're remaking that. Did you know? No, I didn't know. So they're actually going to uh, do a proper big budget. I, I hope so. I hope that because, again, um, I think it's a flawed masterpiece, but it's a masterpiece. And I think the miniseries was okay but not what it could have been. And uh, so I, I do hope they do something a little better. But uh, but I've seen the miniseries, and it's, it's good. Yeah. Well, I know we are short on time. Doug, I really appreciate you coming by and uh, giving a chat here on the Double Back, Double Feature podcast. Why don't you tell the uh, listeners where they can find you? Yeah, all of my stuff, uh, podcast-wise anyway, is at mccoycast.wordpress.com. So I've got a couple of podcasts, most of which are are concluded 80s anthologies crazy creepy cool movies I, I like to do projects that have a a time limit rather than just hey let's do monster movies and it never ends so uh 80s anthologies covered the the twilight zone the hitchhiker alfred hitchcock presents crazy creepy cool movies was just the movies i saw on tv then i'm, I'm doing in the theater now which is done it's all in the can but new episodes are going to keep coming out until october and uh, those were the ones i saw in the theater in that time period sleepwalkers is uh is one of them so um and there's also the dumb things podcast where i just tell stories about dumb things i did when i was a kid and uh, with zerbinator with the zerbinator yeah and and i I really recommend that podcast too that that one's really fun for like a long commute or something that uh so do you guys just on the spot come up with uh uh, with, with uh, like, like school, like dumb things I did yeah. as a kid in school. Do, do y'all give each other like a week to kind of noodle on it? Or? Yeah, so so we'll say, you know, like, hey, next episode we're going to do school. Next episode we're going to do summer. And so, but but it really is just stories that I've been telling all my life and I can feel my mental faculties beginning to <laughs> give a little, you know. And right. so I'm like, I want to record these. It was originally going to be a book. And I just podcast better than I write. So uh, I just decided let's do this in podcast form. And we just tell these stories back and forth. And they're all true. They're all things that happened. And I just tell them the way that I've been telling them for years. And uh, it it is fun. And I, people tell me they love it. It is my my best downloaded show. And so I'm, I'm glad that people enjoy it. I hope the cops don't ever listen 
And, you know, <laughs> I, I hope the statute of limitations is up for all of those transgressions. Awesome. Well, thanks, Doug. Hey, thank you, bud. Thank Doug again for joining me to chat about uh, Maximum Overdrive and Sleepwalkers. Also want to thank you for giving us a listen. Head over to iTunes if you would and leave me a review. I'm fairly new podcast, so I don't have any reviews yet that I know of. Or you can hit me up on SoundCloud. The music for the podcast is by Pottington Bear. Uh, if you have any suggestions about movies I should cover, or if you have any feedback, just hit me up on Twitter. I'm at uh, no end credits or you can hit me up on my new website noendcredits.com if you want to follow the movies I'm watching uh, you can always hit me up on Letterboxd my uh, name there is Curtis Movies all one word please by all means don't let the night end when the movie is over I'll see you in a bit